Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to Seeker Plus today. I am Trace and this is episode one of three in our new series about nuclear. We're gonna talk about nuclear energy, nuclear power, nuclear reactions, you name it, we're gonna talk about it. We've talked a lot about nuclear here on the channel, but there's a lot more to think about. Like for example, who realized that fusion happened in stars and who discovered things could break and combine at an atomic level and who figured out that we could create fission with other elements other than uranium. We're talking about the history, the physics, physics metaphors. Yeah, we got those. Astrophysics, so much more, all about nuclear. Oh, this is so cool. But first, where did the idea of nuclear energy come from? Let's kick into it. Nuclear energy is the culmination of hundreds of years of scientific research into the world around us. People were asking, what's this stuff made of? What's this stuff made of? What's this stuff made of? What is inside of this rock? Inside of that tree? What is inside of water? What's inside of that human? And why does that thing burn or glow or spark or whatever? For hundreds of years, we inched toward the understanding of atoms that make up everything around us in the entire universe, culminating in the nuclear or atomic age. The atomic age began in 1945, but now that we're more than 70 years in, it doesn't actually feel that nuclear. I mean, does it? Like, do you think, wow, nuclear energy has really changed the world today in like 2018? Nuclear energy promised to revolutionize everything that was around us, everything that we had. You know, we had rockets, we had a push-button house that could clean up after everything, and a car that definitely flew. We could make the world better by harnessing the power of the atom. But did that actually happen? Like cars, nuclear just never took off, so to speak. When you say nuclear energy, you're probably thinking of uranium. Uh, so I think that's a good place to start. Elements are pretty simple. I mean, by definition, they are the simplest thing that there is. So let's go back to 1938. We know there are atoms, we know there are elements, and you've got them arranged into a table of elements, a periodic table, if you will. And the highest number that we have found in 1938 is element number 92, uranium. Uranium was curious, pun intended. Technically, the Curies Marie and Pierre discovered radium and polonium, but nevertheless, pun superintended. But let's back up a bit. Uranium was discovered by Martin Klaproth in 1789. 1789! That is so long ago. It was named after Uranus and discovered in a mineral called pitchblende. Pitchblende was known since the 15th century. It actually comes out of mining, it's from silver mines in Central Europe, and Klaproth took the pitchblende and isolated little bits of it, thinking that he was actually isolating uranium. He was wrong, sorry, Klaproth. He sounds like a Klingon, doesn't it? Sound like a Klingon? Klaproth! Anyway, doesn't matter. Finally, in the 1930s, all of this uranium research comes to a head. So in 1938, the ballpoint pen was perfected by a newspaper man named Laszlo Biro. And some of the most advanced technology in the world was stuff like radar, which, sidebar, came out of the British government's interest in developing a death ray, something that could kill a sheep 100 yards away. That's why radar got invented. Isn't that crazy? Instead, they found out that they could use it to bounce waves off of planes and see them coming before they could actually see them with their eyeballs. Doesn't matter. These are advanced technologies in the 1930s. A mechanical computer was built called the Z1 in Germany. And in 1938, Enrico Fermi won the Nobel Prize in physics for his work with atomic energy. The most advanced technologies in the world in the 1930s were pens, radar, a computer that was made of gears, and a dude who knew that nuclear physics was gonna be a thing. 
1935, when Enrico Fermi and others realized that if you bombarded heavy elements like uranium with neutrons, it could make new elements, that was a revelation. It was a huge deal. Chemist Ida Nodak realized it might also split the atoms into lighter ones. It was her theory. Here's how the discovery actually went down. Over the Christmas holidays in 1938, two physicists were going on a walk, Otto Frisch and Lise Meitner. They were analyzing results of an experiment that didn't make any sense to them. Basically, they'd shot a bunch of neutrons at an atom, and they got this weird result. What they thought they were going to get was heavier elements, but instead, what they got was a couple of lighter elements. What the Nodak is that? They actually didn't think of Ida Nodak in her theory of making lighter elements. Her theory was largely ignored at the time. And instead, they went on a walk in the snow to try and figure out exactly what was going on. They thought that the nucleus of this uranium may have split if hit with the neutrons just right. Then the two new nuclei would repel each other at about 200 milli-electron volts. They did the math, and it worked out with E equals mc squared, and boom, they sent a paper off to Nature, and everyone freaked. Not because Ida Nodak had thought of it first, but because they were like, holy crap, no one has ever thought of this. And Ida's like, hey, guys, I had this there. And they're like, oh my gosh, this is brand new. So let me break down, no pun intended, exactly what happened to this uranium that got all these physicists to freak out. Uranium is a giant atom. 92 protons can have up to 150 neutrons. That's a giant mass of subatomic particles. Think of a proton as one Honda Civic, okay? Hydrogen, one Honda Civic. Helium, two Honda Civics. Uranium is a parking lot full of Honda Civics and a bunch of other cars. If you throw a bunch of cars into the parking lot filled with Honda Civics and other things. You can crash them into each other, breaking the parking lot in half and releasing energy everywhere. Easy to picture, right? Fission means that the atom breaks apart and those parts could go flying off into other parking lots and crashing into them, throwing more Civics into more parking lots and causing mayhem, which sounds awesome. That is nuclear fission. It's breaking stuff apart. And that is what they accidentally figured out in the 1930s. And with that, I think my civics metaphor might be done. <laughs> These nuclear scientists realized that they could use this technology to make new elements, and they did that. They also realized they could use this to create a chain reaction, a fission reaction, to get energy in the form of heat. They could also use this to create a chain reaction that would make a bomb. And the military was like, um, excuse me, yes, hello? And they were like, yeah, energy, though. Energy, lots of energy. And the military was like, but what did you say at the, the, the next thing? The, the next thing they did? And that's actually what they did, which was very unfortunate, of course. But back to fission. Fission is one half of the nuclear energy puzzle. Fission is fun. Fusion is best. About the same time of the fission conversation, in about the 1920s, British astrophysicist Arthur Eddington published a paper saying that hydrogen was creating helium in stars in nuclear fusion. Shortly thereafter, Hans Bitte or Beth actually described the process of that, but that's neither here nor there. So why fusion and fission? Think of like the biggest thing and the smallest thing. In hydrogen, you've got one proton and one electron. You can't fission that. 
It doesn't get fissioned. You can't make it smaller. Light elements aren't fissionable because they're too light. According to Dr. Swanson, physicist at the U.S. Naval Observatory, quote, light nuclei require energy to split apart and would release energy only if you confuse them together. Basically, it takes too much work to split the small stuff. So the lightest is hydrogen, and it is everywhere. So you smush two hydrogens together really hard at high temperatures, and you get them to fuse, and then they release energy. But the heaviest naturally occurring fissile material is uranium. Fissile means good at fission. Now, there's a difference here that I learned uh, while researching this episode that kind of bent my brain a little bit, because there's fissionable, and then there's fissile. Some things can do fission, they're not great at it. They are fissionable. They're not fissile. Uranium-238, it is fissionable, but requires more energy than uranium-235. Fissile means you get a chain reaction. Civics hitting civics hitting civics. U-233, 235, polonium-239, those are all great. 235 is the atomic weight, by the way. But put simply, it has lots of neutrons, lots and lots of them. And they can break up and create this chain reaction that releases energy. Imagine a collection of 235 red and blue balloons. The blue ones are neutrons. The red ones are protons. They're all tied to one little skinny string. You add some blue balloons to the bunch, and it breaks off into two bunches. Also, some balloons pop. That is the energy that is released is heat. Obviously, we're ignoring the electrons here. It's just a simplification thing. But some might even form smaller little bunches, like two blues and two reds. And that's radiation, and we're going to talk more about that later, so stay tuned. But if you walk away with one thing from this episode, think of uranium as this big, bulky atom. And if you crack it in half, it releases a little bit of energy and forms two smaller atoms. Because this is the crux of all nuclear energy that we've created. All nuclear weapons, everything nuclear we've ever sent anywhere, pretty much all of our nuclear technology is based on fission. Because it's so hard to get two little hydrogens to smush together. But it's actually pretty easy to get one giant uranium to break apart. Hopefully this all makes sense. Uh, James Chadwick, an English physicist, was quoted in February of 1932 in the New York Times as saying, quote, I'm afraid neutrons will not be of use to anyone. <laughs> then in 1945, just 20 years later, an American physicist, Henry DeWolf Smythe, wrote, quote, the neutron is practically the theme song of this whole project, talking about nuclear energy and nuclear bombs. My point being, as much as Chadwick and Smythe are way smarter than me, I think we could all now say, Henry was right. Sorry, Chad. The neutron is a big deal, and so is the result of all this work in radiation and fission and energy. So let's spend a little time talking about that radiation. Coming up, we've got a special guest to talk all about that and other fascinating topics. Diana Cohen, YouTube's own physics girl. Nuclear energy is kind of all the same, right, Diana? I mean, sort of. Nuclear energy is all the same. As coal energy, as uh, natural gas power, they all do the same thing. Well. They turn <laughs> heat into steam into mechanical energy to make electricity. That, yes, I'll, I'll agree with that. The way that we've chosen to use nuclear energy is very similar to how we've chosen to use coal energy and so forth. Yeah. I mean, we could have... 
we could have chosen to use coal, I suppose, in very different ways, like turn a, a wind turbine with the moving air from burning coal. Oh, that's yeah. true. But we, we chose to spin a turbine with steam from the heat produced by coal and produced by nuclear energy. Yeah. So yeah. They, they perform the same functions, right? The nuclear right. energy portion, it's not like you take a glowing green rod and you stick it in your magic electricity box and you get <laughs> electricity, right? It's like right. the, the uh, fission reaction, which we'll come back to in a second, creates heat, which then boils water and yeah, I, I think that there's this public perception that nuclear energy is some kind of very magical thing, like you were saying, some glittery rod, uh, some some undefined process happens to produce the energy, but it's it's not. It really is like heat. It's almost like it's almost exactly like taking a light bulb and holding that next to some water until the water heats up and boils. Mm -hmm. Because the light bulb is producing light, that's the type of radiation. Nuclear power is producing another type of radiation. It's it's a different type, but that radiation is heating up the water and and then it's boiling, creating steam and turning a turbine. So the first time we decided to kind of use nuclear reactions for energy, it came from a whole team of physicists, lots and mm -hmm. lots of people. But Enrico Fermi is considered kind of the, I guess, top of the pyramid here, right? right? He was right. all like, fission is cool, let's try this. Yeah, um, smart guy. Yeah, he's very intelligent. Theoretical Won the physics. Nobel Prize. Uh, he wrapped uranium in graphite and bombarded it with neutrons, hoping that it would split it into different pieces. Mm -hmm. And they used cadmium because it absorbs neutrons mm -hmm. to control the reaction. And we were talking earlier uh, before we were shooting the podcast about how that's when you think of the rods in nuclear reactions, it's really like a control rod mm -hmm. that maybe you should think of, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, so, so these materials that you use in a nuclear reactor, typically it's uranium, but there are other um, radioactive materials like plutonium. And when they, the fact that they are radioactive means that they decay. They spontaneously emit radiation. Um, they they fission. They fizzle. Fizz They're fission, fissionable. Fission, <laughs> fissile. We'll, right. we'll get into some definitions. Right, right, right. Um, and and uh, that happens over the course of many, many, many years. Sometimes hundreds of years that that decay will happen. But um, you can cause it to happen by bombarding them with neutrons, and that speeds up the process. Uh, but you want to kind of sort of control the process. Like once you start it, all the radiation that's released starts a chain reaction of other radiation. And if you stick something in there, if you stick a rod in there, it absorbs neutrons and that stops the chain reaction. That stops the neutrons from flying out and hitting other uh, atoms and creating more decay. Hmm. Yeah. So in this case, they were using cadmium. So they put the cadmium in, they get a slow right. reaction, they pull it out. Then it starts like a more fission I guess, fission reaction. Yeah, yeah. And they did this in Chicago at the University of Chicago. We call it Chicago Pile One. I think <laughs> That's it's a, a hilarious name. It's just like, okay, great. <laughs> what can we call this that makes it the least attractive thing? How about the Chicago Pile? And then they put it under the squash courts because that one. sounds safe. This was in December of 1942, mm. um, which is an interesting and not quite auspicious date, but uh, nearly. And mm. then uh, they drew the cadmium rods out a few inches at a time mm -hmm. until... Fission actually began at 3.25 p.m., and that was when they say the atomic age started on Three. December 2nd, 1942, at 3.25 p.m. 
The first nuclear reactor in the U.S. that generated electricity came not far afterward, actually, mm -hmm. in Idaho in 1951, December of 1951. So yeah. almost exactly nine years to the day after uh, the demonstration under the squash courts. <laughs> Pile one. <laughs> <laughs> uh, in 1991, the U.S. had twice as many nuclear plants as any other country. That surprised me when I read That's that. That's a lot. Yeah, yeah. twice as many. 22% yeah. of all power in the U.S. in 91. Uh as, as a United States citizen, I feel like we hear a lot of debate about um, about nuclear power and being scared of it. But I think you see even more of that outside of the United States. Yeah. The more you the more you actually leave yeah. as a U.S. citizen, you see sort of this anti-nuclear power attitude in much of the rest of the world. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say I see more nuclear power plants when I'm out of the country, though, in my experience. Like where, going on where? trains through Europe, you see like the nuclear towers off in the distance. certainly don't see a lot of, yeah, maybe. Um, at the time in the 90s, we had one quarter of all of the world's nuclear power wow. here in the U.S., which is surprising. And I like that you brought up that people get afraid of it, right? Like that's kind of when you think nuclear power, you either likely think the Simpsons, mm -hmm. uh, nuclear weapons, or just fear of radiation and explosions and meltdowns, because yep. that's a scary word, and yeah. all sorts of things. And Yeah, Chernobyl definitely comes to mind for a lot yeah, of people. Yeah, exactly. And this is something that we wanted to look into, so we were looking at when did this become a problem for people? And we found an article at Vox while I was researching this, and it said that today a nuclear power plant costs between 5 and $10 billion. But in the 1960s, it was really, really cheap, and it went up sixfold because likely of Chernobyl mm -hmm. and Three Mile Island, which was seven years before Chernobyl mm -hmm. in Pennsylvania. Um, and those things made people more afraid of this new atomic energy that mm -hmm. was like could revolutionize everything. That's what they thought in the 50s and 60s. Yeah, security concerns are not good for money, for your pockets. <laughs> yeah, not so much when it comes to nuclear I mean, power. You think, well, even it just anything. You think about the TSA was created after 9-11. Yeah, yeah, yeah. As a security concern. Right. Like turning in all of this stuff. And I now think, we spent a whole lot more money on, on the TSA than we did before it was true. in existence. That's very true. Thanks. Thanks, TSA. Yeah. You're pretty blue uniforms. <laughs> Another problem that we didn't really know until we built these things at scale, likely, was how much nuclear waste you can generate. Right. You know, it's just like, even though it's very efficient in comparison to, like, how much coal you need to make the same amount of power. Or yeah, whatever, yeah. Um, radioactivity can cause nuclear waste to not just be nuclear rods, not mm -hmm. just be, like, the... the Fissile material, mm -hmm. but also any clothing that was worn in the plant for long right. periods of time, right. any tools that were used, a mm -hmm. broom that the janitor was using to sweep the floor <laughs> near the radioactive like stuff is eventually got to be put in a barrel underground somewhere. Yeah, everything. I mean, it's sort of an interesting idea that, that things that are just, just totally inert are not radioactive over very, very long periods of time. Like the, the half-life of cotton on your shirt is maybe longer than the age of the universe <laughs> or something. What? I don't know if that's true. But, but yeah, but I mean, <laughs> to think about things having a half-life that aren't radioactive is yeah. incredible. Yeah, that just it just never breaks down, um, yeah. as far as we know. We haven't seen spontaneous fission or spontaneous decay of any of these types of elements that, that we don't consider radioactive. But for plutonium, for example, plutonium-238, the, the half-life is somewhere around 87 years. And for uranium... Um, 235, it's something like 700 million years. That's that's certainly much shorter than the 13.8 billion year age of the universe. Right, so we've so had time to um, to see this spontaneous fission happen. Yeah, and that's something else too, is like 
once things have been radioactivated, radioact, radio, radioactivated, irradiated. <laughs> that's the word I'm looking for. Once they, once things have been irradiated, then you have to go and store them somewhere, and you have to store right, them somewhere until right. they're no longer. They've decayed enough mm. that they're no longer dangerous to be around humans, right? Right, right. So that's where the waste comes in. I think there's a bit of a, um, of a, a bit of confusion why there is waste from a nuclear reactor. Because when you burn fuel for a car, for example, you burn it all away. It's mm-hmm. all used. I mean, there might be like a little bit Residues left over. Yeah, yeah, but but. Um, but you basically use all the fuel with. Uh, with a nuclear reactor, you are not using all the material. You're using it as um, as a source for this radiation you're getting out. So if you're using uranium-235, you might get some radiation out once you start the fission process. But uh, but you're left with whatever it decays into, which might be a different element. It might be an isotope of uranium. Um, and that that stuff is still radioactive. It's just not usable in the reactor. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, it's just not efficient to try and create heat out of it to right. turn a turbine right. or a turbine, whatever, whichever <laughs> one it, it might be. I do think mm-hmm. it's interesting that when we think about nuclear waste, I like what you said about we burn a lot of it away when we're using fossil fuels. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. coal uh, becomes air pollution, so does natural gas. Mm-hmm. It creates less air pollution, but it's still there. Um, and that air pollution we don't see, mm-hmm. but it does create you know, millions upon millions of metric tons of pollution. Absolutely. It's just air pollution. Mm -hmm. When it comes to nuclear power, we're creating much less volume of pollution, Mm -hmm. but that pollution is almost like concentrated. Yeah, yeah. It's it's, um, certainly more tangible, (laughs) although you wouldn't want to touch it. You wouldn't want to tangible it. (laughs) Don't tange it, whatever that is. You would not want to touch it. Um, But it is certainly more tangible, I think, that um, to see – you know, heat or smoke or something coming off of a power plant, it it looks like it just disappears into the air and it's gone. It's certainly not gone. We're putting uh, CO2 into the atmosphere, we're putting other types of toxic materials into the atmosphere, but nothing as solid and tangible and clumped together as nuclear waste is. Like We still don't know exactly what we're doing to our planet with all the CO2 that we're releasing. So on a big, confusing scale, we might be causing more harm to the environment with coal. Um, but this but just like nuclear waste is obviously more dangerous. So we've been talking about radiation this whole time, but we haven't really looked at what radiation is. And that's one of the things that I wanted you to talk about while you were here. So yeah. <laughs> I'm going to just quickly say radiation has essentially three types, right? Mm. Alpha, beta, and gamma radiation? Or is that just too simple? The I would say that's too simple. Okay. Um, I, I, th- I like to think of radiation broken up into ionizing radiation and non-ionizing radiation. Scientists love to categorize things. Mm-hmm. Totally. <laughs> that's just one way to categorize them. Um, I, I actually love talking about radiation. It's one, it's one of the first things that I discussed with my parents once I passed that boundary of knowing more than them yeah. about, about physics and science. Can you do I that section again? This. Yeah, because yeah. every time you hit it, it could have an audio Yeah, problem. okay. Um, so I actually love talking about radiation because it's one of the first things that I got to talk to my parents about once I passed that line, that level of knowing more than them about science. Oh, man. <laughs> and, and the thing that I learned that I was so excited to share with them was that um, electromagnetic radiation, which is basically just light, um, is, is all the same thing, just different levels of energy. So that includes, that includes microwaves, that includes radio waves, visible light, 
and then on up into those more dangerous ionizing types of radiation like gamma rays or x-rays um, and even infrared ultraviolet that's all in there just not ionizing um, so so types of radiation uh, that we typically think of are ionizing radiation when when people say radiation they often mean ionizing, ionizing radiation. radiation yeah because technically you know visible light coming off of a light bulb is radiation it's electromagnetic radiation it's just not ionizing um so so i think a lot of the fear of the word radiation comes from uh from not knowing what it is it comes from just a lack of knowledge um I don't want to call it ignorance because why would you need to know what gamma rays and alpha particles and beta particles are? Unless you're Bruce Banner. Who's, who's that? He's the Hulk. <laughs> he got to meet the Hulk because he was, because gamma rays, gosh. You should know <laughs> I, this. You're a physicist. I see. <laughs> <But> I'm, not, <laughs> I'm not a comic book That's okay. Reader. That's okay. That's okay. That's okay. <laughs> I should have known that, though. I've seen the recent Avengers it's good. movie. It's good. Infinity Wars. That's what it's called. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, Sorry, so, I interrupted you. <laughs> no, by all means. <laughs> any any interruption with, with references I'm not familiar with is cool. <laughs> um, so so types of radiation, uh, we've got alpha particles that you were mentioning. That's basically just two neutrons and two protons. It's, yeah. it's like, it's essentially like, the nucleus of a helium atom. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but it has a lot of energy typically because when you break down something like uranium and you shoot out a helium nucleus, you got to have a whole lot of energy to be able to get an entire type of element to escape from the nucleus of another element. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Um, and then and then beta particles are really, really high energy electrons or actually positrons as well, mm-hmm. which are the antimatter of yeah, the yeah. electrons. Oh, I love antimatter. <laughs> and then gamma rays are a type of electromagnetic radiation like we were talking about. Got it. Yeah. And so when it comes to radioactive elements, the most radioactive element is polonium-210. Yeah, yeah, d- debatably, but but it seems like that one's the most likely to spontaneously decay. Okay, and it glows blue? Is that cool? Yeah, Is that true? you know, I wouldn't say that it glows blue. I've heard this, um, but but I think what's actually happening is that um, the radiation coming off of polonium polonium two ten hard to say, um, is actually ionizing the air around yeah. the element. Yeah, so it's stripping off electrons. Like we said, ionizing radiation. Right. It's stripping off electrons, and that's making the air around it glow. Yeah. So technically, the aura of polonium two ten is glowing. Wow. I didn't know you were into astrology. That's cool. (laughs) Only for this one sentence. right now. Yeah. And so it releases alpha particles, um, which you can get a dangerous dose of radiation from polonium, according to um, the University of Georgia's uh, Cham Dallas, in a, quote, microgram, smaller than a single speck of pepper. That's how radioactive it is. Yeah. Yeah. It's very radioactive. That's an incredibly small amount of... Material. Of material. Yeah. The thing is, but though, if you think how many atoms are in that? There's lots. A lot. I, I mean, wouldn't know what I wouldn't order even magnitude. know. Yeah. <laughs> Billions, <laughs> trillions. Right. Oh my many. gosh. Yeah. Uh, there's a fair number of, of <laughs> atoms. But when it comes to this, though, the thing that I think people never talk about, and I would love to get your take on, is dosage. Because, mm. like, in dosage is really where radiation 
sings. You know, if you have too little dosage to hurt you, then it's mostly fine. For example, bananas. Mm -hmm. Potassium is radioactive. Mm -hmm. It's a, it, it breaks down and decays. So if you put a Geiger counter next to a banana, it'll like go crazy if you have it on the right settings. Fiesta ware, colorful dishes from the 20th century. They had a glaze on them that had uranium oxide in it. Mm -hmm. And that was also radioactive. But unlike bananas, you could get a high enough dosage mm -hmm. of radiation from Fiesta ware if you used it for long periods of time. Right. Yeah. Dosage is incredibly important. I think, um, you know, cancer patients would know that dosage is really important because when you're getting irradiated in order to target something like a tumor, um, you're, you're not getting enough radiation to be harmful to you, your entire body, but enough to hopefully kill the tumor. Mm -hmm. So that's when dosage of radiation really comes into play. Um, I, you know, it's interesting. I, I went to Los Alamos National Lab when I was an undergrad doing research. We were working on a, a particle detector, and we had to wear those dose meters yeah. around the entire, um, the entire campus. Uh, because there have been and there, there will always be some radioactive materials there. And the dosage meter just tells you how much radiation you're getting. And it's not like, like if you're getting any, oh, no, like you, you're goner. It's more just like you want to check how much you're getting because just living in everyday life is going to give you a little bit of radiation, a small, small dosage. But um, when you go to a place like the Los Alamos National Labs where the nuclear bomb was developed, um, you want to make sure that you're not getting above that critical dosage that could potentially be harmful. Right. Yeah. I mean, you've even probably read, if you've been around the radiation space, that pilots get exposed to more radiation mm, just right. coming out of like space and being closer to the edge of the atmosphere. Right. Not a lot closer. I right. mean, relatively speaking, it's not that much closer than we are, but it's close enough that there's so much more atmosphere between us and them. Yeah. And the sense. atmosphere... And yeah, and the atmosphere blocks radiation. Mm -hmm. It's just a bunch of gas. <laughs> it yeah. looks like an invisible thin layer, but it's blocking a lot of radiation, a lot of um, cosmic rays, they're called, from space that are dangerous and are ionizing. Yeah. Um, interestingly, I was looking through all sorts of different things that had radiation in them. We have a video about radium and how they used to put that in a lot of stuff, mm. so I won't touch on that so much. <laughs> but um, That stuff is crazy. It is super crazy. They actually put uranium in dentures. Did you know this? I didn't know that. Yeah, so I found this old... <laughs> paper that was done uh, by the Nuclear Regulatory Commission in the U.S., and they used fluorescent quality in uranium to give fake teeth the natural appearance of real teeth, because, no you know, kidding. like, they have that, like, real, real teeth have that, like, glow or that, like, kind of fluorescent yeah. feel, I guess, and they were like, oh, well, we can do that. Just put some uranium in there. So, then so they put it, it in their for, mouth. That's crazy. Yeah. So it was actually for, uh, for like, aesthetic appeal. Yeah, aesthetic <laughs> appeal. Beauty no is a B word, for sure. Uh, 1977, they said in this paper, approximately 40 million porcelain teeth were distributed, mm. and many of those had uranium in it. Who knew? That's, I mean, I didn't know that for sure. They also had lenses that were made, uh, the glass was made of silica, the coating was zinc oxide, and thorium and uranium are natural contaminants of both silica and zinc. I see. Meaning alpha particles could have been emitted from glass lenses yeah. for, like, correcting vision. You know what we haven't talked about, Diana, is the definition of half-life. This <laughs> yeah. is a show where we talk about stuff like that. And I'm sorry, I just got distracted because this conversation is great. <laughs> um, so half-life. Mm -hmm. The definition is, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, you have 100% of something 
and the half-life is how long it takes to get to 50% of its, say, radioactivity in this case. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So say if the half-life is five years and you've got something that's radioactive, in five years, half of that material is going to have decayed. And Into no something else, Into something else, yeah. And then 10 years from now, then half of that half. So now you have only 25% right. left after 10 years. And then, you know, another five years, 15 years from now, yeah. you only have half of that half. So there's about 12.5% left. Right. And yeah. so it just slowly halves every so much time. Yeah, but it's exactly. not like uh, a half-life, it, which is interesting to me because I hadn't thought about it till just now, but a half-life depends on me planting a flag at a point and saying, like, right. this is how much <laughs> I have. Right. It's, not, it, it's not like... Oh well, a half life is because it's constantly happening. Exactly, it's yeah. you know so much per year every year, yeah. or so much per day every day if it's right, a really right, short right. half life, or even so much per femtosecond if you're yeah. talking like really heavy stuff. I think that's typically how like physics definitions and physics descriptors go is they're like, okay, well, you have to define it against something. So mm-hmm. your something is, imagine you start with all of it being radioactive. Right. Yeah, Assuming then. five grams of uranium. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. Okay, so when it comes to half-lives, that's the important thing to note when it comes to storing nuclear waste, right? right. Is that we have to put the nuclear waste somewhere yeah. for at least till the number of half-lives mm-hmm. that it's no longer dangerous. Exactly, yeah, because because you can still have some of it be radioactive and it's no longer dangerous. Radio- radiation of certain types is only dangerous in specific doses. Like above a certain level, that's when it becomes dangerous. But if you've decayed enough to where you're below that amount of dangerous radioactivity, you're fine. You're good to go. Cool. Yeah. So once You're at the level of a banana. Yeah. <laughs> the banana, which is a radioactive thing. We'll come back to that. Okay, Trust yeah. Me. We'll come back. <laughs> Jump too far ahead. <laughs> so when it comes to radioactive stuff, we take the nuclear rods, the nuclear material, we take the, you know, janitor's outfits and the <laughs> tools and the nuts and bolts that actually built parts of the nuclear mm-hmm. reactor. Mm-hmm. And we put it into a bright yellow barrel mm-hmm. and then we put it on a Simpsons cartoon and we call it good. Right. <laughs> you know, that's pretty much it. That's nuclear waste in, in our minds. But yeah. in reality, it's much more complicated than that, like everything. Mm-hmm. So you put it into a barrel and then you pack it with stabilizer. Right, right. Which I think is so interesting. I'd never mm-hmm. thought about, like, what was in those barrels aside from glowing green sludge from cartoons. <laughs> but in reality, it could be all sorts of stuff. Glowing and, green sludge and fancy jumpsuits. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and they store it underground so the radiation can't physically get out of the space. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's similar to the rod that you're sticking in the reactor that absorbs neutrons. If you put something in there that's absorbing the radiation, it's not escaping. Got it. Yeah. And so the, there's an interesting story uh, about that that I found that I actually really find, even though it's a disaster, I find fascinating. Um, at the Waste Isolation Pilot Plant in New Mexico, mm. uh, this was several years ago, um, at WIP, alarms started going off, and they weren't sure what was going on. And something had, like, burst in their nuclear storage facilities. Like, mm. they had put all this nuclear waste away in these barrels, and they buried it underground, and all these alarms were going off, and they didn't know what was going on. Mm. And it turned out, inside of the barrels is kitty litter. <laughs> and inside between the kitty litter is all of that. the nuclear stuff, because <laughs> kitty litter is essentially like this clay product, right? And so it blocks yeah, these radiation. Right, right, right. Do you think they use used clay, kitty litter? That's a great question. I don't know. I Sorry doubt. To I don't think so. Derail the, the story, but I hope not because what, a, what, what a, a smell. No, but what a way to recycle. That's true. Yeah. But let me th- let me tell you why I don't think they probably did because someone packed the nuclear material in the barrels with organic kitty litter. Okay. Which is made of wheat and corn. 
rather than inorganic oh, kitty litter. Oh, I see. And the inorganic kitty litter, it's fine. Mm. But with organic kitty litter, mm. which they were trying to be like environmentally friendly or something, or like <laughs> save some money, that tiny change caused the barrels to burst, releasing radiation everywhere and setting off all these alarms. Oh my god! Because it melted. Yeah, you think of you think of either of the kitty litters, organic or inorganic, being absorbative. But right, it absorbs kitty urine. That's all <laughs> I care about. <laughs> that's what it's used for. Shout but out not... to Carmela, my kitty cat. Oh, she's pretty. I'm a little jealous. I love her. I want a cat. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but you don't think of it as you don't think of whether it would absorb radiation, right? Than just yeah. And so they they pee. apparently had bought either the wrong one or they're trying to cost save at some point. And yeah. So they bought this other one and it just didn't work, which Sister. I thought was fascinating. But it has to sit under there for a long, long time throughout these half lives, which again, uranium's half life seven hundred ish so million years yeah. for something yeah. like this. So. It's going to be down there a long time, surrounded by kitty litter. That's what you should picture when that you picture poor, nuclear waste. That poor, like, I don't know, mom or dad, whoever bought the wrong kitty litter. <laughs> They're like, you had one task on your grocery <laughs> list. This is the problem with nuclear, I think, is that it's so couched in glowing green rods and sludges yeah. and, like, fear of all this stuff. Yeah. That it becomes difficult for people to talk about in a rational and kind of fun, interesting way. Like, yes, there are disasters. Things have happened. People have been injured and killed and, and you know, overdosed with radiation. It's definitely a scary thing. Mm -hmm. But it can also be a fascinating thing, mm -hmm. like a thing that you shouldn't feel bad being interested in, mm -hmm. you know, and being curious about. <laughs> that was a bit of a morbid way to put it. <laughs> but it's like... But I, think, but I think it's true. I mean, like, it's not like we are looking into nuclear power um, because, you know, for no for no reason other than it's, you know, we're morbidly curious about it. It's that, that, that we need energy for many, many of the good and bad things that we need in our everyday lives. And nuclear, nuclear energy is incredibly important as part of that discussion. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's not renewable, but it's closer to renewable mm -hmm. in some ways than, as you said earlier, coal. Yeah. Um, could be damaging the planet in some ways, yeah. you know, and it's not a renewable energy source. Whereas, yeah. if we can figure out fusion now, that's a whole <laughs> other, that's a whole other discussion. But we can figure that that's out. That's a whole other That'd nuclear discussion. Awesome. <laughs> the thing is, nuclear pollution it just never goes away. So yeah. it's dangerous for longer than we've existed on this planet, <laughs> and we should be aware of that when we talk about nuclear energy. But we should also recognize, as you said, we need it yeah. in a lot of ways. I wonder if humans will ever become dangerous for longer than they've existed on the planet. Mm. Like if they ever make it to space. Probably. Yeah. Mind blown. <laughs> Something I've always wondered, you know, Diana, is why don't we just shoot nuclear waste at the sun? Like, it's a big, you know, incandescent Chase, plasma filled with heat and fusion. A lot of people don't know this, but it is almost impossible to hit the sun. We need to talk more about that later. <laughs> <laughs> no, but really, this is a whole other discussion, different kind of physics, but it but we're going around the sun too fast to actually get there. Once you get in closer, you have too much angular momentum. You okay. can't get to the sun. We're going to have you back and talk about that later. <laughs> so radiation is a big deal, but there are a lot of examples of how to use nuclear energy without triggering all of this fission and radiation and all sorts of other problems. For example, nuclear-powered spaceships. NASA has a crazy plan. And I have to say, I love NASA's crazy plans. They're the best. We cover them all the time on the regular show. But this one is particularly crazy and has a great name, Kilopower. Not like kill, it's like Kilopower. It's a fusion-powered spacecraft 
Isn't that awesome? So cool. It uses engines that were designed in 1816, but it puts them into space. Essentially, it's called the Stirling engine. They're now used in yachts and submarines, mostly for auxiliary power. But they harvest heat and funnel it into pistons. The pistons convert the heat into mechanical energy. That's converted into electricity, and any excess heat can be radiated into space. You can create energy from something like nuclear decay or uranium fission or from fusion to power spacecrafts. So cool. On Twitter, at KingSkyet asked us about the fusion in spaceships. Thanks for that question. I agree. Fusion in spaceships would be awesome, uh, but we have to actually figure fusion out first, because right now we can create fusion, but we have trouble making it into a sustained reaction. See, when it comes to fusion, essentially we're taking two hydrogen atoms and we're smushing them together. To do that, you need a lot of energy. At the Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory here in the Bay Area at the National Ignition Facility, they are doing fusion. They're smushing these things together all the time. They're doing it multiple times a day. It's actually pretty easy. The thing is, they can't do it repeatedly. They can't do it over and over in a sustainable way. Because right now, the way we've designed our fission plants, you have a little target, and that target has to be built every time, and they can't just drop a new target in. They have to go in and reset everything up. So if we can figure out how to drop the targets and build them en masse so that we can have them in the exact spot that the lasers hit all at the same time perfectly and work out all that timing, then we could maybe have fusion. But we're just not there yet. We're working on it. Nuclear technology might feel stagnant, but I think this might help illustrate that it's still advancing. Everyone knows that ships and submarines use nuclear technology. Nuclear submarines have been around for a long time, and so have nuclear ships. In fact, there are over 140 ships powered by nuclear just roaming around the planet. Uh, they're powering more than 180 small nuclear reactors, and they've had 12,000 reactor years of marine operation since the 1950s. They were first launched in 1955. Uh, nuclear submarines are a mainstay of young boys' obsession with the military. You know, the, the big submarine coming out of the water and splashing everywhere. It's awesome. And the nuclear engines on those submarines were a revelation once they were put on there because it allowed the submarine to not have to resurface to get fuel, right? So instead, they could stay submerged for weeks on end, and they had enough energy to go 20 to 25 knots while they were down there. It's a pretty big deal. And recently, nuclear technology is advancing a little bit further into portable nuclear power plants. But let's go back into the past a little bit again in a minute, because I mentioned this earlier. Uh, we do put nuclear stuff into space. Voyager 1 and 2 both run on nuclear power. Mars Science Lab's Curiosity runs on nuclear power. Even the Cassini and New Horizons probes run on nuclear power. Over 40 different spacecraft have flown with a nuclear-powered battery on them. And it's not fission. It's based on radioactive decay. They run on something called an RTG, a radioisotope thermoelectric generator. The Voyagers had a set of them. Uh, Mars Science Lab's Curiosity has a little one. And this sucker is nuclear. Again, though, not fissile. RTGs work by harvesting the heat from radioactive decay of an element. In this case, let's look at plutonium. So they turn plutonium's decay into electricity. To get the plutonium into the RTG, by the way, you have to go to the Department of Energy. Department of Energy, big deal. They have to fill the RTGs at the Department of Energy, and then once they're filled, they are sealed forever. 
You can't open them up and you know fix things because it's now radioactive. The DOE is a big deal, which is why it's usually run by physicists and nuclear experts. Big deal. Anyway, I'll just let that lie. The Voyagers are using three plutonium-238 RTGs. That gave them 470 watts at launch. New Horizons uses one that has a 300-watt RTG. As the plutonium naturally decays, inside of the RTG are two metals that end up at different temperatures thanks to the radioactive decay heat. Once they're at different temperatures, electrons move between them, generating electricity that can be used to power the spacecraft. The problem is they decay and over time become less and less hot, thus less and less useful. The half-life of plutonium is 87.7 years. Voyager was launched in 1977. Now it's dropped from the 470 watts from when it was filled to closer to 300 watts. Nuclear is going to change the future. It's already changed the past, which means it's changed the present. It's going to change the future as well. We just have to figure out how to make it safe. I think if you take one thing away from this series of episodes, it's that fission is useful. It will help us get to fusion. And fusion will take us the rest of the way. If we can get fusion, we will have unlimited, simple energy. We will be using the same energy source that the sun is using. And mostly in these episodes, we've talked about fission because it's the one we're doing the most. It's the one that I think people don't necessarily always grasp as simply. The future is not fission, though. It is fusion. And again, we talked about NIF. NIF, the National Ignition Facility, uses over 190 lasers to shoot all of this energy right at this tiny little centimeter target so that they can fuse the two little hydrogens or deuteriums, really heavy hydrogens, together and make energy. And they get energy, but they don't get more energy than they're putting in yet. You need a sustained reaction for that. I found this crazy story about fusion that I want to share with you before we go. When you make fusion, you take two hydrogens and you smush them together to get helium. But if you put helium into a solid, like you force it together and you start making lots of helium, what happens is, is it creates little bubbles. Think of it like a soda or, you know, like a bubbly water. The helium will effervesce, sort of, inside of the solid. And because of that, it can create little pockets, which destroys the stuff that you're trying to fuse together. And it's something that they're trying to overcome in fusion right now. But if you use nanocomposites, which are layers of metals, like nanoscale layers, like sandwiches, like those waffle or wafer cookies that you would eat, um, those nanometer scales cause something crazy to happen. I'm just going to quote the lead researcher, Dr. Demkowitz. He says, quote, we were blown away by what we saw when we did this. So what happens is, when you fuse the two hydrogens, you still get helium. The helium still creates little pockets, and those little pockets link up. But instead of destroying the material, they link into tunnels that start to resemble a vascular system. They sort of look like veins, and the channels link up until they can find a place to exit and get the helium out of there. Isn't that awesome? Fusion is going to be so cool, and they think they can use this vascular system to create what they call vascularized solids, which will help transport heat and electricity and potentially even chemicals throughout a solid material, which is so cool. Fusion is the future. Fission is the now. 
Nuclear science is incredible stuff. It's the bleeding edge of engineering, science, technology, and math. They have to have picosecond calculated clocks to make some of this stuff work. But it's also history. It's also in the past. It's been around for almost 100 years. We live in the atomic age, but we could get more atomic. We could get more better. What do you guys think? Thanks so much for hanging out with me here on Seeker Plus. I hope you really enjoyed this episode. If you did, leave us a rating. Share us with your friends. We're trying to get Seeker Plus out there and make it huge. And you can help with that. I'm Trace. You can find me on Seeker at youtube.com slash Seeker, as well as all our other shows. You can also find me on Twitter or Instagram at Trace Dominguez. Again, special thanks to our expert guest, Diana. You can find her on her YouTube channel, youtube.com slash physicsgirl, or on Twitter at thephysicsgirl. This episode was written by Trace Dominguez and fact-checked by Megan Bates. The associate producer was Victoria Barrios, and it was edited by Alex Estevez. It was recorded by Spencer Snyder and Matt Pignol, and our intern... Actually, we're currently accepting intern applications. So if you want to be an intern at Seeker, make sure that you go online to group9media.com and look us up. And one last time, thank you again for listening to Seeker Plus. We are going to be re-releasing and rebroadcasting updated versions of our episodes on this channel. So we will definitely see you around. Make sure you subscribe for all of those and our new episodes, which will be coming out roughly once a month. Stay tuned for our upcoming series next week. I'm Trace. See you next time.